Friday the 12th of November. This is the Climate Alarm Clock. This week's main stories, we've all the latest from COP26, we look at what's in the Climate Action Plan, and where does Ireland rank in the 2021 Climate Change Performance Index. Also coming up on this week's show, Anna has the final part of our Mean Bog story, we continue our collaboration with Irish Doctors for Environment, Cara gets some sustainability tips from the Useless Project, and we chat to Kaylee Crosson live from COP26. Hello and welcome to the Climate Alarm Clock, your weekly Irish climate news podcast. I'm Dara Wynn. COP26 is all but finished now and we'll be giving that quite a lot of focus this week, but the climate story is far bigger than one conference and as usual we have a great mix of climate features. As always, we start with the news and I'm joined by Kira Tiernan and Anna Pringle today. How are you doing? Yeah, good, oh, Dara. All good, Dara, thanks. Yeah, so we'll be starting with COP26 and at the moment it kind of feels like there's two COPs going on almost. Yeah, um, I was lucky enough to be over in Glasgow last weekend. Um, I wasn't inside the COP, but outside of the COP, um, on the streets, in the protests, there was amazing energy, real drive for change and climate justice, which was very um, inspiring. But seems like inside the COP, a different story has been going on. Yeah, I think there isn't that real realisation of how bad things are, how much change we need. And so even last week, we reported that a study had been done that if all the commitments were met from this COP, which is a big if, that warming will be reduced to 1.9 degrees. But then uh, the Climate Action Tracker have come out and their study suggests that it will be 2.4 degrees of warming, even if we meet these targets. And that really shows the sort of disconnect between what needs to happen and what is happening and the narrative that's going with that and I think that's summed up probably quite well in the draft agreement for the conference Anna. Yeah there's now this may be out of date because the the changes daily but there was a decision um, published on the 10th so a couple of days ago and the draft so-called decision from the COP and I looked hard to find an actual decision in it and there was nothing that struck me as a decision but lots of waffle language really and what is the draft agreement exactly so they after every cop they publish an agreement or a decision that's reached by the cop um so for example in paris the paris agreement was obviously the decision there um so this sort of sums up what the outputs the official outputs from the cop are so it's in categories like science adaptation finance mitigation and it has a lot of, you know, noting things, emphasizing, recognizing, um, notes with serious concern, the findings from the IPCC report. That, yeah. yeah. So if this was going to be a strong agreement, it would have a lot of sort of obligatory language where it's saying that the parties, the countries will do this, shall do this, where it's more like have regard to this yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, so they, weak stress, they stress the urgency of increased ambition. They express alarm and concern. The only thing in there that is um, maybe a little stronger than usual is it calls upon parties to accelerate the phasing out of coal and subsidies for fossil fuels. That is the only mention of fossil fuels in the document. And there was some discussion afterward that that may come out 
in the negotiations. So we'll have to wait and see what the final yeah. document so, is. So as you're listening to this, it might it might have yeah. been taken out. And I think then, so all, like that draft agreement kind of points to a bit of a leadership crisis. Yeah, within the and COP. one of the things, Dara, that struck me um, about COP is that leadership theme. And as Kira was just saying, you're seeing young people and activists and NGOs showing a lot of leadership and energy, but we're not seeing the same thing from the so-called world leaders who are showing up there. Um, and, you know, Obama coming on Monday was just one example of that. And he still seems to have superstar status and people applaud him and so on. But he actually stood on stage and basically told young people to stop sulking. Yeah, I mean, that was a little bit cringy, to be honest. Um, Obama, while he was in while he was in power, the fossil fuel industry was booming in the States. Um, but a well, nice fracking took off while he was in power. And I mean, we won't even go down there, but a nice caveat to Barack Obama was our very own Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland and chief elder to the United Nations. Um, and she gave a very moving speech um, about the urgency of taking action and called out countries like Australia, Saudi Arabia um, on what they need to do um, and their responsibility to, to the climate and, and the environment. But it's also the passion that she showed and the emotion. And I mean, one of the comments afterwards was from Tara Shine was that it would be great if we had more male leaders showing similar levels of emotion and passion since they're the ones with the more power. Yeah. And if they're not able to show emotion and passion, pass the mic. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Yes. As we say, bleep the patriarchy. Absolutely. That's it. Um. And so I suppose on the topic of leadership and climate action, we said last week we're going to do a deep dive into the climate action plan. And actually, there's so much in it that we're going to take a little bit from the climate action plan every week for the next three weeks. So I suppose initial reactions for me to the climate action plan is that it's a big step up in terms of the the soft measures compared to the last climate action plan. So the original climate action plan only had mentions of a just transition and engagement in education sort of tacked on tacked on as a chapter at the end now in this new version there's two chapters on just transition and a chapter on engagement and that's and they're early, up front and they're up front so that's that is a pretty pretty positive development um so we will be getting into more depth about different aspects of the climate action plan next week and the week after but for now we're going to focus on transport so kira what's in there with regard to transport the good and the bad yeah so there are good and bad um with regards to transport in the plan um starting with the good uh, i was happy to see the safe routes to school program um was launched this year and that supports walking scooting and cycling to um school in primary and post-primary um schools which is good for children good for the environment more pedestrianized areas more traffic free zones improves planetary health and human health um and reduces the risk of accidents um on roads all that good stuff um some kind of questionable uh news this week or or something kind of disappointing that was in the news this week is that um for for an additional time the dart underground um, project has been shelved for at least 20 years following the review um, from the National Transport Authority. Now, I would say we don't have 20 years to wait 
for increased um, rail transport options um, and, and Metro North has gone away again I think too hasn't it or been delayed again yeah 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 um, and it just seems like the pri- priorities are a bit out of whack because um, there's a, a hundred million euro of funding going to um, e-vehicles which excludes cargo bikes excludes electric bikes and is is basically exclusive exclusively devoted um, to cars by 2030 we hope to have 845,000 electric vehicles on the road. Those are privately owned vehicles. Um, and at the same time, only 1,500 public electric ve- vehicles. Well, that's down from a million EVs. I mean... And, and, and at least there is a little bit of a shift in emphasis in that they're talking yes. about increasing the proportion of kilometres driven by EVs to between 40 and 45%, as opposed to getting to a million cars on the road. But either way, yes. it's still too many cars on the road. Yeah, so it is It is a step change in the right direction in terms of the EVs, but we do need to see a modal shift away from car usage, really. And something to say about the Climate Action Plan in general is that it is updated every year. So hopefully, year on year, we see increased ambition, we see increased moves for kind of more systemic changes. And with our Climate Action Plan being announced... Uh, you would think that in the latest climate change performance index, we would be doing very well. So, so first of all, what is the climate change performance index? Yeah, the climate change performance index is a study run by German Watch, where they evaluate uh, 60 countries looking at climate change performance based on greenhouse gas emissions, renewable energy, energy use and climate policy. And Ireland, despite our new climate action plan, has dropped seven places from 39th to 46th. And the big reason for that is because our emissions are so high. No. <laughs> well, you see, this is where you get the gap between plans and strategies and reality. So our emissions yeah. are still very high. And in fact, even this week, um, Niall Sargent um, was talking about how Ireland is ranked seventh worst out of 20, 28 EU member states in terms of total greenhouse gas emissions. So think about that for a minute. We're by no means um, one of the biggest EU states, yeah. but we have one of the biggest greenhouse gas emissions. And mm. when you look at it per capita, it's even worse. And just finally, another reason that we were ranked so low is that we should be endeavouring to reach net zero emissions before 2050 in order to be aligned with the Paris Agreement and do our fair share as a developed country. And before we leave the newsroom, Anna, what's our not climate story this week? Okay, so our not climate news story this week is about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the Eternals film, which came out, I think, in the last week or so. Not too great reviews, I'd have to say, but the connection is that um, Dr. Martin Worthington of Trinity College supplied them with the Babylonian language for using in the film. Partly some of it is set in ancient Babylon and he provided the language so he was on media this week and he's delighted with himself because I guess it's not often that um, a Mesopotamian scholar I can't even say that um, is in you know a massive blockbuster so so yeah so he provided the language for it and what has that got to do with the climate well I think it's an interesting one because if you think about Babylon it was one of the seven of the seven wonders of the ancient world and is a massive civilization and a very sophisticated city and all that's left of it now is a few ruins somewhere in Iraq 
And that whole civilization has died out. And one of the reasons that scholars think it died out is partly because of drought and climate change. Okay. So it can happen, you know. Mm. Yeah, that's chilling. Yeah, and also <laughs> the fact that it was a revived language, I think it says a lot about the impacts that climate change can have on culture and culture disappearing and that's that's not mentioned in the draft agreement of the uh of cop 26 it's not mentioned in our climate action plan but it's one of these invisible impacts that we don't see that's already happening but around yeah the world. but it does really um reinforce the need for conversation and for engaging communities and actually we had mark foley from airgrid this week he was talking about we have the technology we have the engineering to up, you know, to upgrade our grid, but we need to bring people along with us, and having those conversations with communities is so so important. And that's it from all of us at the newsroom for this week. Coming up next, we continue our collaboration with Irish Doctors for the Environment with Dr. Sive Lee. Also, still to come on the Climate Alarm Clock, we chat to Kaylee Crossan live at COP26. Kira will be back a little later on with the event guide. Kara chats to Taz and Geraldine from The Useless Project. And Anna will be back with the final part of the Mean Bog story. But first, we're continuing our collaboration with Irish Doctors for the Environment. I spoke to Dr. Sive Lee this week and I started off by asking her to introduce herself. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks a million, Dara and everyone at the podcast for having me on. Um, so I work as a doctor in obstetrics and gynecology, um, and I'm currently working in the Coombe Hospital. Uh, so that's kind of where my main interest is, is the overlap between uh, planetary health and sexual and reproductive health. Yeah, and this is quite a big topic. So I know we're not going to get into all of it in this little interview, Sive. So we're going to look at a few areas and... The first thing I think that you're going to tell us about is maternal health and, and pregnancy. So what what are the links between the environment and climate change? Um, yeah, so this is actually a really interesting and a really kind of growing area, the link between the climate crisis and pregnancy. Certainly one that there's been a lot of studies on recently is air pollution. Um, it's been linked to things like preterm birth, uh, growth restriction of the baby, pregnancy, diabetes and high blood pressure. Um, there's been a couple of studies over the last few years that have looked at um, placentas, which is the organ that provides nutrients and oxygen to the baby when they're in the womb and have found evidence of air pollutants such as fine particulate matter and black carbon on the placenta. Um, so that's evidence that these pollutants are reaching this organ. Um, and obviously then you have to think about the implications of whether or not the baby is affected from this. Uh, we also have seen studies that have looked at rising temperatures and linked it to things like preterm birth and even cardiac defects or problems with the baby's heart when they're in the womb. Um, there's also kind of links to, you know, natural disasters and then the complications of migration that are associated with that. So when mums have to move, there's uh, links to mental health problems as well as all the other kind of complications that I've already discussed. So a really big, a really important area for all of us working in this um, speciality. And then the last area you're going to discuss, Sive, is is around the environmental impact of breastfeeding versus bottle feeding. Yeah, um, and this is can be a very sensitive topic um, and a slightly controversial topic. So first of all, I want to say it's not at all if there's anybody listening out there who's chosen to bottle feed 
there's no um, guilt or shame or blame to be associated with it because breastfeeding doesn't work for every mum. But it is an area that we don't always consider as something that can affect the climate. Um, Formula feeding is an industry and with an industry, there's, you know, a huge amount of emissions associated with it. So for either that's from the processing or the transport, um, the, the fossil fuels that they use to do that, and then there's also additives, sometimes like palm oil, which we're all pretty aware of the uh, uh, climate impact of. And then there's the waste side of it. Um, in 2009, there was a study done that showed 550 million formula cans um, were added to landfill each year. Um, also, a recent study just uh, last month in Ireland, you actually pointed this one out there as well, um, looking at if we in Ireland changed or increased our breastfeeding rate because we have one of the lowest the lowest in Europe and one of the lowest in the world um, which is pretty pretty uh, shocking and something that we could really improve on but if we did um, increase our breastfeeding rate to the minimum recommended by the WHO which is 50% versus if the uh, formula industry went to renewable fuel sources still increasing our breastfeeding would have a better impact on the climate. Um, And also breast is best for baby and breast is best for mum. So I think that all of us who are working in the sector just need to be conscious of it and try to really support women um, and help with kind of initiatives that are trying to uh, improve breastfeeding rates in the country. That was Dr. Sive Lee, and we'll be releasing that full interview where we hear more about the links between climate and reproductive and sexual health. And you can also hear more from Sive this week at an IDE webinar. And to find out more about this event and many other events, we're going to hand back to Kira Tiernan with the Irish Enviro Event Guide. Hello, and welcome to the Irish Enviro Event Guide. As usual, there are lots of great events taking place throughout the country and online. So here are some of the highlights for this week, the 15th to the 21st of November. Starting with online events, Engineers Without Borders Ireland are hosting a webinar on the transformative potential of community-led housing as part of their Reimagining Sustainable Development series. It's taking place on Wednesday the 17th at 1.30pm. Register through the Engineers Without Borders website. If you've enjoyed our collaboration with Irish Doctors for the Environment, check out their webinar with the Irish Global Health Network on Thursday the 18th at 1.30pm. The event, which discusses climate change implications for health and the healthcare system, hears from doctors who have devoted their work to environmental issues. You can register through globalhealth.ie. The webinar is also being moderated by the very inspiring Dr. Sive Lee, who I loved hearing from on this week's episode. For the listeners interested in attending in-person events, there are plenty of opportunities to get involved. So for our business friends up north, the innovation factory Belfast are hosting the Business of Net Zero on Thursday the 18th from 10am to 12.30pm. Designed for small and medium enterprises, this workshop explores practical examples of emissions reduction strategies and how to begin to adapt your business plan for a zero carbon future. Register through eventbrite.ie. Shout out to my creative types in West Dublin. You can join writer Nell Regan for a poetry workshop in Lucan Library 
looking at how to convey the mood of a season in a few words. You will embark on some writing exercises during the session and make up your own weather and winter related poems. This event takes place on Thursday the 18th at 6.30pm. Register through eventbrite.ie. The National Youth Council of Ireland are hosting a workshop, Youth Ideas to Global Action, on Saturday the 20th from 11am to 4pm. This event takes place in Dublin and is designed for young people between the ages of 16 to 30 who want to be involved in shaping our future. The workshop will explore global citizenship and ideas for positive change. There are 40 spaces, so spread the word to any young climate activists you know. Participants will leave with a deck of youth empowerment cards and a One World Week resource pack. Register through youth.ie. That's it for this week's events. You can find links to the mentioned events in the description of this episode and be sure to follow us on social media for details of these and additional unmentioned events. If you know of any events taking place, get in touch with us at climatealarmclock at gmail.com. That was the Irish Enviro event guide. And if you want to follow us on social media, as Kira suggested, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Climate Alarm Clock and on Twitter at The Climate Alarm. If you like what we do, please subscribe and review the podcast and be sure to recommend us to a friend. Now we're returning to COP26. I spoke to Kaylee Crossan, who is in Glasgow, and I started by asking her to introduce herself and tell us about her experience of COP so far. Hi, everybody. I'm Kaylee Crossan. I'm the editor of The Green News, and I've been a climate reporter for three years. So I'm here at COP26 covering protests mainly. It's been a really interesting experience. Each day is kind of a different set of protests addressing different issues within the climate crisis. For example, yesterday there was a group of indigenous people from Brazil who were standing outside the entrance to the venue itself and they were hosting a protest and basically explaining what it's like to be on the front line of the climate crisis. And that's not something that really you experience as a climate journalist unless you're in a country on the front lines. Um, so it's been really an incredible experience to put it mildly <laughs> and inadequately. Um, yeah, yeah, it seems it seems from seeing the footage, it just seems to have been, you know, a really like any of the protests we's, we've had here, but times 100 in terms of the in terms of the emotion and stuff. What, what has what has sort of your emotional reaction been to being amongst those protests and amongst those people? That's a great question. So, like I said earlier, I have been a climate reporter for three years and I remember one of the first really, really big protests in Dublin was in March 2019. And there were, I believe if I have the figure right, 15,000 students that were in, that were taking part in this action. And I remember um, walking down kind of the main street leading up to the doll, and there was just kind of like this wall of sound. And I've been at other protests with, with a huge amount of people, but I hadn't had that experience of like hearing a chant kind of ripple from the back of a crowd and go all the way up to the front until uh, this week. I got lucky enough to hear it twice, two days in a row. So I'm sure as many of your listeners are probably very interested in all things climate news related, there was a uh, international Fridays for Future strike on the first week of COP. So that was the Friday. And that uh, was about 25,000 people. So a similar experience of like snaking around different streets in the city center. And I think 
for me, a moment that was very emotional and one that's going to stick with me, hopefully throughout the rest of my career, is myself and a couple of other reporters were walking alongside the march or we were getting out in front to see what pictures we could get. And as we got closer to George Square, where the rally was going to be held, we kind of hopped up on higher elevation, like in these buildings kind of had little jets of things that you could stand on. And when you have that vantage point, that perspective to just see reams of thousands, thousands of people coming down a street and we were like on elevation. So you could just see like literally thousands of people with signs of all sorts, people from all over the world demanding climate justice. It was, I don't think I could ever adequately put it actually into words. It was really incredible. And similarly, on the next day, on the Saturday, there was um, over 100,000 people. So actually, I went to the same spot that I went to on that Friday to kind of get that same vantage point. And each time, it was just completely jaw-dropping and awe-inspiring. Yeah, yeah, I I, I bet. <laughs> um, it sounds, yeah, it sounds, yeah, sounds sounds amazing. Do you think those protests are having an impact on the proceedings inside in COP26? So we're recording this before the final outcome of COP is out. So I think the real verdict is going to be what's in that final document. So I think at the moment, it's kind of difficult to tell. I was speaking earlier today to Connor O'Neill, who is the policy officer at Christian Aid for Story, and he was saying that, in his opinion, the document, the draft document that he's seen so far doesn't capture what people are calling for on the streets. So I think as it stands right now, there's a lot of commentators saying that what is going on within the building itself and the document that's being produced right now isn't matching the ambition that we're seeing with protesters. So I think the final document is where we're going to be able to tell if that ambition was matched. I've been thinking about, I've been thinking quite a lot about these protests um, over the past 10 days because I go out and cover them every day. I think one thing that's really stood out to me about these protests and what I'm trying to highlight in some of the reporting I've been doing is that we're really seeing an intersectional link. I know sometimes people say that word might be overused, but truly like the protests, the participants in them, the issues that are being brought up at rallies are really demonstrating how interlinked these issues really are. Um, for example, on Saturday, when I was walking along the march at one point, we saw groups of migrant rights organizations. We saw a lot of trade unions. It was really like to see all these different societal movements come together under one umbrella is something I personally in my career have not seen. So that's something that I think is being reported on and being covered and, and photographed. And I think that's shaping the public narrative to see the kind of solidarity that's building across these movements in a way that personally I haven't seen before. And before you go, I know the concept of climate grief is something that you think we should discuss much more. And there's an essay Mary Hegler wrote this week that really resonated with you, which I'll share in the show notes. Um, we actually talked about the emotion in Mary Robinson's interview during the week, and it can be really, really powerful. Um, yeah, and I think sometimes people who are either working on the issue or reporting on the issue hold themselves to this standard of like emotional objectivity. Hmm. But you're a person. And at the end of the day, the climate crisis and the ecological crisis, of course, is about like all life on the planet. But it's also about humanity. It's a human story. And seeing and hearing about that much suffering, of course, is going to have an emotional toll. So taking the space to recognize like the existential weight of it 
and I've been trying to do that while I've been here to just recognize moments where it has been very intense. And, you know, you can, of course, like people even who do this full time have moments of despair around this and, and being able to hold that space rather than trying to push through it is something that Mary Hagler writes beautifully about and has for a long time. So really can highly recommend to go and have a read of that essay. That was Kaylee Crossan, and if you would like to hear more from Kaylee, be sure to check out greennews.ie. Coming up a little later on the Climate Alarm Clock podcast, Anna finishes off her four-part feature on Mean Bog. But now we're continuing our collaboration with Book of Leaves podcast, where Cara was chatting to Taz and Geraldine from The Useless Project. Hi guys, so this week I'm going to share a snippet of episode 39 of Book of Leaves in which I interviewed two absolute positive legends in the sustainable scene in Ireland which are Geraldine and Taz of The Useless Project. If you do not know about Geraldine and Taz, well, you are welcome. These two people are just bursting balls of positive energy. They have an Instagram account which you can follow at The Useless Project and they share so many really useful information and slides. They host flea markets and much, much more. So absolutely check them out. And here is Taz sharing lots of leaves in the form of sustainable food decisions and choices that you can make to reduce your personal carbon footprint in your home or in your business if you have a food business. So I hope you enjoy these tips from Taz, of which there are many. The number one way that we can reduce our carbon impact on the planet, our carbon impact, our water impact and our energy impact on the planet is the choices that we make around food. So that is the way in which we buy food, the way in which we consume food, the way in which we dispose of food. Um, The number one way that we can reduce our carbon impact on the planet. And it's extremely accessible. It's a very doable thing to do. So a couple of kind of like top tips Um, that I would say, or both of us would say, is like, just try to cut down on your food waste at all possible. One third of all food that's produced goes to waste. One third of all food. So huge amounts of resources go into producing that food food that is then going to waste. So we always use the example of like the Amazon rainforest that's being chopped down. So say like it's being chopped down for oil plantations, for palm oil plantations. You have to imagine the deforestation, the orangutans going um, extinct, et cetera, et cetera. All of this being done so we can have palm oil. If one third of that is wasted, then one third of that damage is all done in vain. So if we can chop down on that one third, it can make a huge impact because that's just wasted food. It's not even it's not even damaged so that we can eat food and get nutrients from it. It's completely wasted. So to cut down on your food waste, there's loads of top tips. You know, try to batch cook where possible. Become friends with your freezer. Take note of what's in your fridge before going out and doing another shop. Like a couple of ideas of like having a list on your door of what's in the fridge so you don't go out and buy more apples and you've got apples in there. Also, learn how to actually store stuff in a fridge so take for example the fridge door is actually the warmest part of the whole fridge so if you're putting your milk in the fridge which is probably the most perishable item that you have that is the hottest place it can be so it's going to go off quicker top tip like that as well and then also try to yeah then also try to repurpose your scraps so you know if you have little bits of bread left over that are gone stale make croutons or 
from vegetable peels. You know, vegetable peels, we have decided are waste, but they're part of the vegetable. I don't know why it's not food waste, it's food itself. You know, we have just decided that a carrot peel isn't food or an onion peel isn't food or a banana peel isn't food. When the whole thing is food, we've just decided that the outside is waste. So try to look up different kind of top tips on how to repurpose those things, like trying to make a stock out of scraps. And um, what are the top tips for food? Eating seasonally. 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 Um, so I ne- I only heard this in the last, like, say, five months. And that's by eating seasonally. That's like the easiest way you can reduce your carbon footprint when it comes to food. Well, sorry, probably after waste. So there you go. If you want to hear more about eating locally or sustainable fashion or Geraldine and Taz's story, tune in to episode 39 of Book of Leaves and make sure you keep up to date with them on Instagram at The Useless Project. Talk to you next week. Thank you, Cara, and thanks indeed to Taz and Geraldine for the great food waste advice there. Finally, on this week's Climate Alarm Clock, we're handing back to Anna Pringle for the last part of our Mean Bog story. Have you ever considered the dangers of falling into a bog hole? As a child in Donegal, we were warned that they're bottomless. We'd look into the black water and wonder about that, but we didn't take any chances. I spoke to a woman who was reared on the edge of Mean Bog and she told me that as kids they were always warned not to walk over that hill because it was so swampy. Then, she said, Kilcha planted it with forestry. Later, the wind farm was going to put 19 turbines on or near Mean Bog, all but two on Kilcha land. When the bog slide happened, the people in the area were devastated but not surprised. The same woman told me that the day it happened, she was going down past it that morning and inside her car she could smell the bog. She got out of the car and could hear the rumble of the bog rolling down the stream. She said it was sickening to see it. It kept moving and rumbling all that day. In Ireland, peatlands cover more than 20% of the surface of the country. We have three types of bog. Raised bogs in the Midlands, low-level Atlantic bog mainly in the West and high-elevation blanket bog. Dr Maria Long is a grassland ecologist and she has a great affinity for blanket bogs. When you have blanket bog, when you have living a living peat, living blanket that's made up uh, mainly of sphagnum moss, so this living moss, it's the same thing that makes up the raised bogs, but they tend to be much more um, finite. So yeah. they make a kind of a, a dome and there's a, a definite edge, whereas the blanket bog peters out into other habitats in various directions. It is more like a a blanket, maybe with thinner bits and slightly fatter bits. Bogs can burst and slide naturally, but forestry and wind farm developments can destabilise the bogs, as Dr Long explained. In general, if you have blanket bog or a peaty habitat, if you go digging in roads into that or planting in forestry, you're changing how that functions and bits of it are drying And sometimes the drying happens underneath. You don't have to be an ecologist even to to guess that this piece is a living, wet entity. And if you dry it and damage it and crack it and cut the edges of it, you're going to get drying happening within it. You're going to have cracks. If you have really strong rainfall events, you can get slippage of a big chunk of it. Peatlands play an important role in climate change. In their natural state, they sequester more carbon than forests and are second only to oceans in the amount of carbon they store. But when they're drained or degraded, 
they become a significant source of carbon emissions. Experts here estimate that 85% of Ireland's peatlands are already degraded. So instead of providing us with a natural carbon sink, Ireland's peatlands currently emit about 9 million tonnes of carbon dioxide every year. Who will pay for destroying the carbon sink at Mean Bog? How many tonnes of carbon were emitted by the bog burst? Almost a year to the day since it happened, even though multiple agencies are involved, we still have no reports. I asked Dr. Maria Long about the likely impact of such a bog slide. It's going to be a very poor secondary habitat if and when it revegetates. It ain't going to be living bog for a very long time, not without significant work or maybe not ever. I started this story intrigued by the bog slide in Mean Bog. The more I've looked into wind farm development in Donegal, the more I've come to agree with Dr. Maria Long's conclusion. The uplands vary and the deeper the peat and the more integral the peat, the more we definitely should not be doing anything because that's such a valuable habitat. I think if you ask any self-respecting ecologist, is uh, forestry on on peat a good idea? No. And is wind farms on peat a good idea? No. And yet, wind energy is essential to decarbonise our electricity and the Climate Action Plan has huge ambition for increasing both onshore and offshore wind. But listening to the communities in Finn Valley and Gibara as they struggle to protect their environment and landscape, as they raise funds locally to fight the deep pockets of what they call big wind, as the hen harriers and golden eagles are threatened and our bogs are destroyed, this leads me to question, is wind energy just another form of extractivism? Wind is renewable, but is large-scale wind production in special landscapes really sustainable? especially when the communities are not seeing the benefits? If we're choosing to destroy our bogs to allow Amazon data centres to continue to drive economic growth, is that an informed choice that we're making? And who's profiting from that growth? We have a great opportunity here in Ireland. Restoring our bogs to health means they can continue to sequester carbon for centuries. And there could be so many other benefits. Cultural, biodiversity, community development, health and even the emotional benefits of spending time, as poet Patrick Kavner put it, round by the glistening bog holes lost in unthinking joy. That was Anna Pringle, and if you enjoyed the four-part feature, we will be releasing it all as a separate standalone piece in the future. That's it for this week's show. As you're listening in to us, COP26 is either finishing up or has already ended. We sincerely hope that the great climate news coverage that has accompanied COP does not end with the conference. One thing is for sure, we'll be back next week and the week after with all our usual features and explainers and are delighted to announce that we will be back in the new year for a second season of the Climate Alarm Clock, your weekly Irish climate news podcast. Until next week, goodbye.